Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. Hey everyone, I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. And this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. You know, something I've learned while doing this podcast is that surveillance can extend far beyond the government or a tech company watching you. So this week, we're going to expand our definition of surveillance technology. Beyond cameras, beyond metadata and social media, we're talking about written forms, manual data entry, an institution that is supposed to be here to protect children and also families. We're talking about the foster care system in the United States, a system that needs some eyes on it. Now this conversation is one that is very personal to me as I've been up close and personal with the foster care system for the past few months or so. And during this time, I've learned that the watcher actually needs to be watched. Yeah, there's a lot of systemic issues that come up in the news from time to time, but it's a necessary system. People need to be able to have a space where children can go when their homes are no longer able to accommodate them. Yeah, well, what I've learned is that it is a system, but it is a broken system, to say the least. And as we progress through this podcast, a lot of it has been us advocating for for less, you know, technology, for less surveillance. But I would say when there are families and there are children involved, there should be the right types of technology and surveillance. So given your experience, you know, over these past months with the foster system, do you think it's one that can exist without surveillance? I don't. You know, when you are talking about the lives of children, you need to know what is happening in the home of the child. You you need to know, right? I think that it provides some level of protection, you know, for the child and for the family. But then again, you know, you have this downside where every single thing that I do is being watched. Every single thing that I do is being critiqued right? How does the system work? Is it based off of just, you know, everyday people and their feelings about what a good parent is, what a bad parent is, what a good household is, what a bad household is? Um, and I've, I've that's kind of played out in, in my personal life. And that's why I'm excited about today's episode, because people who are in the system can really communicate to us their experience and tell us what was really, you know, what really happens. Here's Patrick Vaughn reporting on the state of the foster and adoption systems in the United States and why it might be time for the paper-based record systems to be digitized. 
The foster care and adoptive systems in the United States rely on overburdened social workers to handle dozens of cases each day. Schooling, medication, and parental reunification documents are just a few things that are tracked within the case files for wards of the state, not to mention the potential records of abuse. However, some advocates point to a potential remedy to the current foster care system, transferring from the current paper-based record system to a digital one. What I focus on is my lived experience, which is foster mm -hmm. to adopt. That's Carlos Dillard, author of Ward of the State. He advocates for foster youth by educating social workers and foster parents in Seattle, Washington. 19 years ago, when Carlos was 10 years old, he was adopted, an adoption which ultimately failed at 15 years old, forcing Carlos out of his supposed forever home and onto the streets. Carlos went on to work three jobs, putting himself through high school and college, all while homeless and couch surfing. He is now a speaker and advocate for foster care reform and currently mentors foster care youth. My mother was a, one of the largest drug dealers in the, in Michigan, in the Detroit area in the 90s. Um, and, you know, we weren't necessarily abused, but there was a lot of neglect. Um, there was a lot of times where she was gone for uh, weeks at a time and I was taken care of by my older sister. So in my case, it was neglect. Uh, that was the ultimate mm -hmm. reason. But there was a lot of different ways. Uh, children end up in a foster care system. In my case, I went to a temporary foster home for a couple weeks. We were there. Um, within those couple weeks, they're really hoping that they're looking for family members that can do kinship care um, mm -hmm. or family, friend, uh, family friends who will be willing to take you in. If social workers can't find kinship care in a matter of weeks, they transfer you from temporary to permanent foster care. We were placed in a temporary homing, housing shelter. It was called Child Haven. Um, and you kind of stay there until they can either find you a home where all four of your, your sibling group can go or they kind of split you up. Um, and they split, split us up in my case where my sister and I went to one home and my brothers went to another home. Simultaneously, a parenting plan with checkpoints is developed which must be completed to regain parental rights. This includes things like general parenting classes, getting a job, rehab, or even mandated therapy. And for me, I just kept getting bounced from home to home to home. And um, as you read in the book, sometimes it was for reasons that I caused because I had emotional uh, and uh, trauma issues that weren't being addressed. And then sometimes I was just being sexually, mentally, and physically abused. In his time in the foster care system, Carlos was transferred between 37 different homes. He was diagnosed and treated for various mental disorders, and once he was even physically detained by straitjacket. I was uh, medically misdiagnosed by foster parents and doctors, ADHD, PTSD, and then I was on a plethora of medications. So I'm on Adderall, Respital, Rebutrin, Ritalin, like a cocktail of medications all at the same time, which have devastating effects on the mind. And with that being said, I became special needs. So my foster, the benefit of foster parents doing that is because they get paid more by the state. My foster parents were just like making up things like, oh, he's doing this. Oh, he's suicidal. He's this and that. And the doctors mm -hmm. aren't really doing their job. They're just listening to my foster parents. I'm like, okay, well, let's get him on this med and this med and this med. And mm -hmm. what ended up happening was by the, by the time I was eligible for adoption, I was so mentally um, disabled, uh, according to the state, that my parents got a $2,500 stipend which means that the state paid them $2,500 a month to adopt me. Carlos's medical records, his behaviors, the stipend his foster parents received, all of it was recorded in some way. But it wasn't in one place. Without having a bird's eye view of a person's case file and history, spotting irregularities or even abuses can be difficult. 
Carlos says this form of decentralized data exacerbates problems within the system. I don't know the word for it, but we need to just like normalize one system for all states when it comes to foster care and adoption. Carlos notes two major issues within the system. There's no communication between states, meaning if abuse is reported in one state, foster parents can simply move to avoid investigation. And six months after adoption, check-ins from Child Protective Services, or CPS, end, meaning adoptees have no support if their adoptive parents become abusive. We need a centralized location for CPS and organizations to communicate to keep children safe. The overall difficulty of accessing one's own records has a profound harm on foster youth and failed adoptive youths. For an adoptee or former foster youth to obtain their case file, they need to pay a fee, get fingerprinted, and follow an official process that can take years. So, but then like the state doesn't keep really good records. They just like throw boxes in a warehouse and they're like, yeah, it's in Mm -hmm. there somewhere. My particular case file, it took me two and a half years to get my case file. I had to physically go to Michigan. I was living in Florida at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to physically go and like physically go to the warehouse because after my adoption, like your birth certificate gets changed. What, what ends up happening with me was I got abandoned when I was 15. So I only had my social security card and my, um, and my birth certificate, which had my adoptive parents' names on it. So when I went to go file for my FAFSA, they were like, yeah, we need your parents' tax information. And I was like, well, I actually was a foster kid. They're like, no, you weren't. And I was like, how are you going to tell me I wasn't a foster kid? So, <laughs> And that's when I really started to learn the differences and the disadvantages of being adopted versus being a ward of the state. As a failed adoptee, Carlos has an added obstacle to overcome. In order to be eligible for governmental assistance programs, he needs proof that he was in the foster care system to begin with. Once you have a failed adoption or an abandoned adoption, I believe that you need to be reverted back to a form of a foster youth because you don't have parents. You don't have anyone that you can legally or socially rely on. When thinking about how the foster care and adoptive system can be reformed, Carlos speaks to the three R's, rehabilitation, reunification, and resources. To address these needs, Carlos is currently working with a software developer in Seattle to start digitizing adoption files. There should be an app that is state-run that has all of your medical information, as much as they possibly can, all of your Mm -hmm. transitions, so like what homes you went to, everything that's been documented about you needs to go into this app. Um, That way, in 10 to 15 years, people like myself can go and access that app and and have all that information and don't have to go shuffle through a whole warehouse full of boxes uh, to find papers that half of it's redacted. Um, so like, I think that's our, our next thing as adoptees is we're, we're going to push for everything to be digitized uh, so we can all have access to it, no matter when we are or where we are. Carlos isn't the only former foster youth attempting to reform how foster care and adoption data is collected, compiled, and used. Hi, my name is Sixo Kanto. I'm the founder and CEO of Think of Us, a nonprofit focused on systems transformation and child welfare. Sixto is working to leverage technology and digital systems to improve the lives of foster youth by bridging the gap between policy, practice, and people. Sixto says stories like Carlos's are not an anomaly, and issues within the foster system are widespread. We just did a study called Away From Home where we interviewed and engaged 78 young people, and they all lifted up uh, themes such as physical and sexual abuse. So the study revealed that, you know, 
that these facilities are very punitive and that they're not helping young people heal and develop and stay connected to family. One of the things that's fundamentally broken in foster care is that it's it's who gets to take care of you. Right now, if grandma, aunt, uncle wants to raise their hand and say, hey, we'll take you in, in many states around the country, you'd get little to no support whatsoever. But yet, if we place you with a foster parent, the national average that that foster parent might get is 800 bucks a month. And so how might we actually think about how to support kin and support families with those same type of resources, those same type of supports of healthcare and a worker who can help you get referrals to different services so that you're actually able to stay with family? Sixto says one of the things that will transform the system is using technology to find family members, speed up administrative processes, and connect people with resources within their community. Furthermore, like Carlos Dillard, Sixto believes the current child welfare system needs dramatic reform, specifically in terms of accessibility to case files. So today, what's so interesting is that um, child welfare is, you know, using these softwares that are completely outdated. And so one of the things that we really believe that should be happening is that workers should have access to the right tools. Young people should be able to log into a portal and understand what are their rights, what are the services that they can be accessing. And so how do you actually keep that young person connected to what's going on within their situation? Listening to Carlos and Sixto, it's clear that paper-based tracking systems need to be transferred to digital ones. The benefits include easier access to records, more autonomy and ownership of one's own case history, and the potential for early intervention, which could ultimately protect foster youth from harmful home environments. While the current foster care and adoptive systems are antiquated, there is an upside to being so far behind the curve. You can learn from the mistakes of those that came before you. To better understand how this might play out, I called Sarah Lagason, a sociologist in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University and author of the book, Digital Punishment. Sarah studies the criminal justice system in the U.S. and the pitfalls it experienced when transitioning to a digital record-keeping system nearly 30 years ago. I think, you know, the story of sort of mass data collection and the legal system is really related to mass incarceration and just like the size of the justice system getting bigger and bigger and bigger through the 80s and 90s. And you have, you know, the system getting really large on the one hand and then technology um, sort of expanding on the other hand. And these forces sort of come together when the courts and prisons, police departments realized they couldn't manage a system of this size using all paper-based files. Lagason says this led to a market for the private sector to sell software packages, kind of like HR software, but for the criminal justice system. And, you know, government contracts can be very stable and, and long-term uh, working arrangements for technology companies. I've interviewed the decision makers at um, the government level about how they choose the the software they use. And often, you know, they're having uh, salespeople come to them and sort of offer the suite of, of new options and, and as a way to kind of get that contract. Unfortunately, what was also happening though is that these companies in the fine print, especially in the early days, were really just making copies of the data for their, their other business ventures. So um, in the book, I write about kind of this mess that happened in Colorado where the Colorado courts partnered with the company to manage their electronic docket. And little did they know that company was, at this time, they were using magnetic tapes to store the data, but they were taking the data and they were selling it to background checking services. And the court said, well, no, no, this information is not 
been being produced for that purpose. It shouldn't be used for that kind of decision making, but it was. And they tried to take their data back from this private company who turned around and sued them saying, this is public records, you can't withhold it. And and the courts lost that the court battle and, and eventually got a new vendor that had better privacy protections. But um, it was pretty bumpy at first. Legison says, for the most part, transparency law in the U.S. makes government records accessible to the public for watchdog purposes. But because of the kind of data that is collected in the criminal justice system, we end up learning more about people than we do government entities. She calls this the reverse sunshine effect. It's really about the people, the person that deals with the people that are being processed. And so this is why, you know, you can know, perhaps know very little about racial disparities in local arrests or jail conditions or prosecutorial discretion. But I can know like the home address of everybody who's been arrested in a jurisdiction yesterday. So this is called the reverse sunshine effect, where we learn more about people rather than agencies. And that just makes it a really valuable data commodity. So if I'm a data broker and I want um, data that's really cheap and easy to get, I can use public records. And there's things, there's identifiers in there that mean that this new data can be merged with other sorts of data, like people's addresses or birth dates or full names. In foster care and adoptive systems, years worth of personal data are collected. People's educational, medical, and behavioral records all are documented. Sixto, for example, was in the system for his entire adolescence and teenage years. That's a lot of data. It could be an informational goldmine for companies like Google or Meta. So as people like Carlos Dillard and Sixto Cancel work to streamline and digitize record keeping, there is a risk of making personal information that much more accessible. Lagson says it's paramount to put protections in place and to build legislation around protecting this kind of information. Courts have really relied on this notion of practical obscurity where because paperwork systems were kind of messy and like someone would have to do a lot of physical labor to go like pull all these records about you, that that gave us a privacy protection. And obviously in the digital age, that's that doesn't work anymore. I think a huge part of it is real transparency. And by that, I mean transparency for the people who are going to be held in databases or who are going to be cataloged. So if we should treat all these databases the same, meaning like I should have access to my own data. I should be able to remedy an error. I should be able to, the data should be sunsetted. I should be able to leave and my data should be deleted at a certain point. Thinking really critically about the private interests that are going to be at play. So one thing that data brokers love about the criminal justice system is it gives all this personal data for poor people. And you can sell that data to predatory loan companies, for instance, right? Or to market products that are going to extract even more money out of vulnerable people. Despite having been digitized for three decades now, the criminal justice system lacks a singular coherent network. It's instead decentralized, operating through independent and self-directed nodes. If you want to like really understand a data system of the criminal justice system, you have to learn over 3,000 different systems because it's really a county-based sometimes a state-based approach. And so the quality of the data is reflective of the, that local decision-making. The structure of the data is reflective of whatever contracts, whatever software that local jurisdiction is using. And there's really no incentive to share data. It's because who do you do? Do you share 3,000 different agencies? I mean, what does that, what does that look like? And so it, there's just a lot of data fragmentation. The foster care and adoption systems therefore need to be centralized. 
That way, information can flow between local networks and states, instead of collecting dust in a warehouse somewhere. However, there are still barriers to making this change. All innovation and technology relies on like these old-fashioned factors of like buy-in, like worker legit, like do the workers actually like believe in this system? Are they going to input the data carefully? You know, is there is there a culture of acceptance around these new modes of doing things? So I think like institutional sociology could actually um, be a really helpful lens for thinking about how to do this well. And it's going to require um, a new belief system on behalf of the people who are in charge of creating these, these data systems who have been living in a different, very different administrative environment for a long time. Overhauling record keeping in the foster system might seem like a purely technical challenge, but it's not so simple, says Sarah Lagason. I think that these con- these conversations that we're having are really crucial. I think that we often forget there's a whole human element to the data-driven society that we're in. And we think technology is sort of like this big new shiny tool, but it's really not like, it's really not its own inertia, right? We are, we are the architects behind it. So there's lots of choices that we can make about how things are developed and how they're used. And you know, perhaps technology has been moving a lot faster than these conversations in the past, but I'm hopeful that now um, it's kind of, we're at a different moment and, and we can be more reflective. Right now, the National Adoption and Foster Care Home Study Act is being discussed in Congress. While the bill is controversial, it demonstrates that conversations on database reform are happening. But even if a new law is passed, the question is, Will a centralized database protect foster and adoptive youth or put them under that much more scrutiny? That was Patrick Vaughn reporting. And that does it for us today. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend and leave us a review to tell us what you love about the show. See you next time on Tracked and Traced. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Patrick Vaughn and editing by David Lyons and David Weinberg with mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU FCU.